Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. This is Sarah Baltzberger from Lincoln, Nebraska. Get exclusive podcasts and more at patreon.com slash partners in crime media, just like I do. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts, TV, and this week, two investigations that touch on spycraft and show business. First, the father of actor Woody Harrelson was a notorious contract killer, maybe, but was he responsible for the crimes he was accused of, including, dun dun dun, the Kennedy assassination. We'll talk about the Spotify podcast, Son of a Hitman. Also out on Spotify, we'll look into whether a Cold War rock song was actually a piece of CIA propaganda. It's wind of change. Join me to get that done and more is my real life husband, true crime co-author, former TV journalist and hair band auditionee, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Is it because my locks have gotten so long? It's insane. Yeah. Like I was on a conference call at work today <laughs> and you walk behind me like casually to like go put something on the grill or whatever. And one of my coworkers was like, is that Kevin? What happened to his hair? <laughs> well, it just, it's fine in the back and it gets long, <laughs> but then on the temples and the side, it it's just- very big. Like a mushroom. You're rocking those like 1890s. Yeah. Like Chester A. Arthur chops right now. <laughs> exactly. It's very impressive. It's like Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> and also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, certified cat lady, walking tour aficionado, and front porch lover, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello. Yeah, that's me. I've got a new little place set up on my front porch. I did a Facebook Live out there this week. It was very exciting. And finally, our captain of Oak Cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy and host of Strange Arrivals, the hit podcast about UFOs, and our Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. V Gates, Rebecca. Well, that's thematic for sure. It sure is. <laughs> um, so before we start the show, I just want to say there's a lot of great stuff on Patreon that folks should check out, including a brand new Toby Ball's Deep Dive book club podcast about Catch and Kill, the Ronan Farrow book. That also ties into our after show conversation. Conversation, which is going to be about the Ronan Farrow hit piece published by the New York Times and all the conversation that has generated. Kevin, what else is on Patreon right now? Well, that after show is going to be very special because instead of a podcast this week, it's going to be a video show. <gasps> Are we putting it out as a video? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, unless this whole thing falls apart and we'll just have to take <laughs> this whole line and edit it out of our podcast. Yeah. Yeah. We've got lights in here, cameras. It's all very exciting. Yeah. Hopefully we don't mess this up. Even Lara was forced to like clean up the shelves behind her so can prepare for this video thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a fake wall and everything. And I have lighting next to my cat calendar. Of course you do. <laughs> Legit. It's next God. to the cat calendar. Lara, that is the most Karen thing you have ever said <laughs> oh no that's what will calls me all the time too. yeah <laughs> no 
Karen. But I don't have the hairdo anymore because my hair hasn't been cut, so I can't be Karen. There was this amazing post on Reddit this week where this woman, um, someone like took a screen cap of a Facebook post where this woman was complaining. She was like, a bunch of kids have been harassing me and calling me Karen, and I'm wondering if I can take some legal action to stop them. And the first comment was like, yeah, taking legal action is not going to stop them from calling you Karen. <laughs> Way to reinforce the brand. <laughs> All right, Kevin. Uh, speaking of Patreon, do we have any Patreon patron saints this week? Yes, we do. Our Patreon patron saints are Christy Ferry and Erica Cecil. Bless you. <laughs> Why is it so funny every time? I don't know. I think it has to do with the fact that you do like the bow and hand gesture with it. Oh, you can't? Yes, yeah. <laughs> It's very papal. Yes, exactly. (laughs) All right. We have a lot to get to on the show this week, so let's get started. You guys ready? Yeah. All right. Ready to get into this? Yeah. All right, cool. What do you know about what we're doing so far? Well, I understand we're going to investigate probability of my father being involved in a couple different assassinations. He was a professional gambler in and out of trouble with the law. He was also the father of future actor Woody Harrelson. But in 1979, Charles Harrelson was charged with slaying a federal judge, the third killing attributed to him. Harrelson would kill anybody for $500. But now I'm telling you, Charlie got along with everybody. Everybody seemed to like Charlie. Charles was a serial killer. And he was, he was a card shark. He was a scary guy. I mean, he was a scary guy, for real. In the new podcast, Son of a Hitman, host Jason Kavanaugh explores Harrelson's life of crime with the help of his son, Brett. This includes Harrelson's earlier arrest for the murders of a carpet salesman and a grain dealer, and rumors he was involved in the most famous assassination in history. You know, just to, to, to take like a, a big step back from this, I mean... Do you think that Charles Harrelson was involved in the assassination of JFK? We're going to be talking about plot points from Son of a Hitman. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes. All right, Laura Bricker, question for you. A big question for you. Okay. Do you think this podcast is interesting? Go. No. (laughs) (laughs) And And I'm like so tormented because I'm like, wow, this has everything. Woody Harrelson. I love Woody Harrelson. It's got Hitman. It's got like Texas. It's got a private investigator. Like I should be so interested, but yet I don't know why I had to keep like reminding myself to pay attention. Is it just me? Am I missing something? There's a reason why I asked you that question first, Laura, but first I'm going to go ahead and, and poll the rest of the panel. Toby Ball, do you think this podcast is interesting? Yes or no? Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, do you want do you want me to expand? I wasn't I sure do. if the poll was just thumbs up or thumbs down. <laughs> you know, it's funny that uh, Laura says that because I, I basically liked it, but I did find myself at times like I'd get done with an episode and I'd be like, "What just happened?" It's like when you're suddenly on exit four, and the last <laughs> yeah. exit you saw was exit seven. Yeah. But the actual like material of the podcast. It with some caveats, but for the most part, I thought it was very kind of noiry. You know, it's 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 about these kind of seedy people and these plots, basically, mm. and and guys, you know, owing money and bumping other people off, and you know, so in that way, I thought it was pretty interesting and pretty evocative. 
But it's funny that Laura said that because I was just, you know, it was one of those things where I was like, wow, you know, all that stuff that people talk about, about how they have such a hard time concentrating during these like days of, of quarantine. Like, I guess it's finally hit me because mm. I can't freaking remember things. <laughs> so you weren't blaming on the podcast. You're blaming on the quarantine. Well, but then I listened to Patrick Radden Keefe's thing and I was like, I didn't have quite any of those problems. Problem. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Kevin? I'm sorry. I know it's kind of a loaded first question, but I'm really curious about like why this was made, who it's for and if it's actually interesting. I'm curious to know your initial thoughts. on Well, that. I think the story is interesting. The podcast itself is kind of falling flat. I find myself in the same boat as Toby, which is that, you know, I'm sitting here like preparing my notes and I'm like, well, uh, what happened? I'm bringing the podcast back up on my uh, phone. I did the same thing. You know, looking for some kid, like somebody mentioned somebody's name, jog my memory. For some reason, it's just not sticky. I have a theory as to why. Yeah, why? As a reason why I asked. I think this podcast is a profile in mediocrity. I think oh, the, right. the writing is mediocre. I think the delivery of it is very mediocre, but I think at the heart of it, even if you have a story where the writing is mediocre and the production is mediocre and the delivery is mediocre, what you have to me is essentially, and, and, and maybe Toby will disagree with this, I think it's a very uninteresting story with uninteresting characters. Like, mm-hmm. So we have a guy who it sounds by all accounts like was a criminal. Uh, and what are we trying to prove? That he didn't commit one of these crimes? And why are we trying to prove it? He's dead. And he was a terrible person. He was like an abusive, terrible, racist person. What exactly are we trying to prove? We're trying to get to the truth of something. But the stakes to me are just so incredibly low. Like, who are we satisfying with this truth? Are we satisfying his son who has already written a memoir? Are we satisfying Woody Harrelson who's a famous millionaire who's going to be fine if this truth never comes out. Like, who are we satisfying with See, this in truth? in that way, it shares some DNA with the clearing, hmm. where you have a bad guy who's the subject, and you have uh, a reporter getting some help from a relative. But I think uh, the purpose, you know, I don't know if it's really the same. You're right. I don't know. What are we trying to find out? To me, that the, he, yeah, the, the clearing had a bigger story. Though. The clearing yeah. was also about family and about memory. And it had like other more existential threads. Dude, this guy almost might have killed President Kennedy. It's pretty big. Toby, this reporter. (laughs) No, he didn't. (laughs) Did not leave his hotel room. This reporter flew to Texas so that he could sit in his hotel room and let other people go knock on the doors of his subjects. Am I wrong about that? No. What the hell? (laughs) Hiring a private investigator? Because you can't go out and find people on your own? I mean, what do you think would be our best shot in trying to talk to her at this point? Now, the only thing left to do is try a face-to-face to show up down there. Show up down there with some flowers, and Temple's not but a little over an hour away. Oh, that's not bad. I mean, I can head that way here in a little bit and be there about 1 o'clock. Okay, also, I'll be standing by. <laughs> I thought he was just you know, in a different part of the state. The private eye was like an hour away, so he was closer to the Sandra. <laughs> Sandra Sue? Sandra Sue. I-, I think that was just to make it sound more intriguing. Yeah. That was kind of confounding. You know, he talks about how nervous he is. Like, what the fuck are you nervous about, man? This, this happened a long time ago. Yeah. Like, who's going to get you? Yeah. And like, <laughs> the one guy, Frank D. Maria, who's got a gun, and you're just like, well, I'm not going to go and see him, I guess. Oh, my God. That scene. I'll give him a buzz. Oh, my God. I'll give him a call. One of my favorite, like, very mediocre scenes of the podcast is when he makes that phone call to Frank D. Maria. They have the conversation, and, and his interstitial narration is like, great. I just told him my name 
and where I am. And I'm like, yeah, you're sitting in your hotel room. You're going to be fine. <laughs> Frank, Frank DiMaria is not having his car to come and whack you. Pretty clear. You never know, Toby. Never know. Yeah, that's true. Could so, Laura, I have a question for you about Woody Harrelson because he's sort of in the... I, I think this. the only reason this thing was made was because this guy is Woody Harrelson's dad, right? Pretty much. Because nobody would care otherwise. Yeah. Nobody cares so, about the pot-dealing brother. <laughs> <laughs> so we hear this pretty fantastical story at the beginning where Woody Harrelson himself in interviews and also his brother Brett, who's in the podcast, talk about how they think their father got railroaded at his trial, which, you know, may or may not be true. We don't know because they literally never talk about it again. But anyway, they uh, have this whole situation where they talk to the lawyer that Woody Harrelson hired for the dad, which is this famous defense attorney. Mm-hmm. And the famous defense attorney tells the story where the judge overseeing the appeal was going to throw out the case until Woody Harrelson made the bizarre choice to go play pickup basketball with the judge at the YMCA where he worked out. And so the judge then had to recuse himself from the case. Who do you blame more, Woody Harrelson for trying to tamper in the case or the judge for playing pickup basketball with Woody Harrelson? Oh, that's a good one. Um, Both of them were pretty stupid to take part. I mean, the judge is probably like, oh, cool, Woody Harrelson. But... What the hell? I mean, and that's the thing about this is that Woody Harrelson doesn't participate in this podcast, but his, you know, fingerprints are all over this case in terms of hiring the lawyer, getting involved in that regard. You know, I think he did, was it like an interview with like Barbara Walters at one point where he spoke about the case? Yeah. It wasn't a fair trial. I mean, when you're saying, what are they trying to prove? I think they're trying to prove like it wasn't a fair trial. But like, to me, that's not a big enough stakes question to warrant an entire podcast, really, unless there's like some new evidence that's like really shocking. But Back to that lawyer, like I, I, I think the thing, the scene that has confounded me the most listening to this podcast now is that scene where, you know, lawyers that I've dealt with are pretty discreet about their clients and their dealings. And I have never heard like the fact that he's telling this story about sitting in the hot tub smoking pot with Woody Harrelson. And that's how he found out about the case and got involved just seemed so unprofessional to me. Yeah. And yeah, it makes a good story. It makes a good story when you're in the back room with your other lawyer friends. You don't mm. tell it on a podcast. You know in what some, I mean? In some like, states, you could be disbarred for that, where smoking pot's illegal. Yeah. So, yeah. Not yeah, that, low. but just the way that he's talking about his client's son. Like, I don't know. It just seems so, I don't know. It just, it, it turned me off that particular story. Kevin, you were raising your hand. What were you going to say? Woody Harrelson might be able to say, I didn't know that was the judge. I didn't know that was judicial interference. Uh, the judge should have known yeah. that that's Woody Harrelson yes. and the case is there. But he may not have been intimidated because he knows white men can't jump. <laughs> oh, Kevin. <laughs> if you've seen that movie, you do not have much respect for uh, Woody's skills. Yeah. <laughs> I got to say, though, this so pod... He, he could go on uh, on uh, Jeopardy. <laughs> yeah. Letters uh, that begin with foo- Q. Foods that begin with a letter Q. Quayhawk. Quince. Anyway, what struck me about that story was there are so many things in this podcast that are written poorly and framed poorly. And that story is one of them because our host says some person took a picture like it was the person who took the photos fault that this judicial interference was uncovered. No, it was the judge's fault for being like, yeah, I'll play pickup basketball. Kevin, the judges that we know and Mm -hmm. we do know some judges. Yeah. Would see 
a person involved in their case coming, even like in Market Basket, and would literally like put down their bread and walk the other way. That's yeah. what's supposed to happen, right? Yeah. All right. judge is so, supposed to be somewhat monastical. They are supposed you know? to be, yeah. A federal judge in particular. A federal judge is not running for office. Federal judges know better, or should. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's no need for them to be. It's not that they appointed local opponents. I, I mean, ones. he certainly can be in a pickup basketball league. Mm. I mean, I mean, even for fuck's sake, even Toby Ball is. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, there's nothing really wrong with that on its face, but... It's Texas. Yeah, mm. it's hard to say that that wasn't inappropriate. Now, Toby, you wrote me a note that the host of this podcast does a few things that are pet peeves of yours. Like what? Uh, well, we already got into one of them, which is freaking out about how nervous he is about nothing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that's always like trying to like create this sense of danger based on nothing other than your own nervousness is not a great look. But the other thing is he does a lot of this. I always think of Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which is, I don't know if you know what that book is, but it was what those were the guys who, uh, the guys who wrote it sued Dan Brown for coming up with the Da Vinci Code, basically based on their theory about all this stuff that happened in the Middle Ages with like the Knights Templar and stuff. And the book is all about like, you know, well, it seems as if these two people were here at the same time, then who's to say if they didn't get together and, you know, create this? And it's like this weird kind of speculation. And he kind of does the same thing. I learned he grew up without a mother, which had to have some impact on his childhood. And his dad was intelligent and ran a ranch. So I imagine Charles had to do some hard labor when he was a kid. Yeah, and then there's, there's another one. The one that really stuck with me is, I think it's at, at the end of one of the uh, episodes where he's talking about how he knew this guy who was somewhat involved in, with the mob, I think, in Vegas. And he's like, so, you know, what if he was actually working for the Vegas mob? And it's like, uh, you're making some pretty huge leaps here, dude. <laughs> and then, of course, he follows it up with some hint about how he might have assassinated President Kennedy, which is the biggest of all of those. Yeah. So I think the British call it thin gruel. Uh, <laughs> you know, there, there's not a whole lot there, and you're trying to make the best of it. They call it dog's breakfast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Laura, I have another question for you, and I'm, I'm curious to know. You didn't put this in your notes, but I want to know if you noticed this, okay? Okay. So, Laura, Sandra Sue, who was Harrelson's girlfriend when he committed one of these murders, they track her down with the help of a PI who then hands the phone to her. And then he, I guess, our host talks to her from his hotel room, which I don't understand why, but that's the second story. Um, she basically tells exactly the same story she told many, many years ago. So she's pretty credible. She also talks about being abused by Harrelson. Like he, you know, became who's in an abusive relationship with him. And she really tells this very harrowing story. And then shortly after that, we kind of get to this passage where they talk about her testimony at trial. She's shocked she was not believed and that he was acquitted. And then our host says, yeah, but maybe she had other reasons for wanting to put him in jail. And I found myself thinking, like, this is a guy who has just spent this whole podcast believing every absurd detail that every man tells him. Mm -hmm. And then when this woman tells him this credible story, he spins this speculation that maybe she exaggerated on the stand because she wanted to imprison this guy. I found that, like, offensive. <laughs> I don't know. Did you yeah. notice that? 
I didn't notice it, but now that you're talking about it, it, you know, and I'm thinking about that particular scene. Yes, because it's like insinuating that what? Because, you know, he was abusive. So she's going to lie to put him in jail. She can't put him away for the abuse. She'll put him away for this, uh, you know, murder that she's going to frame him for. Like, really? Are you fucking kidding me? Because he does buy into a lot of these other like crazy theories. And I I just have to say the P.I. thing was ridiculous. It just sounded so staged to me right down to the P.I. showing up and giving her flowers. (laughs) Those are for you. I'm like, is this real? Is this real scene that's happening right now? I felt like whether or not he knew how to be a reporter, I felt like some of this was done for dramatic effect. Like, you know, he could have gone out, pounded the pavement and done some shoe leather reporting and found these people. But it sounded more exciting in a podcast to have a PI, my PI in Texas. I'm like, yeah. really? Did it also- talk about something dramatic is all the music cues. Oh my God. If something, something would happen, it'd be like the Ooh. stinger. <laughs> Stone. I don't know, Laura. There was a real pain, Lindsay. Oh, yes. Kind of feel. Yes. Classic pain, Lindsay. Classic pain, Lindsay. Not neo pain, <laughs> Lindsay. But classic He's pain, been, Lindsay. But where there was a lot of, hey, I will show and tell you. Yes, you know? I will. I will. I will tell you I'm packing my bags to go to Texas, and then insert a scene with my girlfriend Phoenix for no reason, in which I am packing to go to Texas, and she's like, "You ready to go to Texas?" Like literally, yeah. what is the dramatic purpose of that scene? Other than like, are we supposed to like him better because we know that someone else likes him? I don't understand what that was there. I got to say one sort of side thing is that the boys had a teacher in high school, Mr. Olson, who taught uh, German. So he was known as Herr Olson. (laughs) And I cannot stop hearing Herr Olson when people say Herr Olson. Sorry, Herr Olson. Herr Olson. (laughs) Damn it. So um, Jason seems pretty excited about the fact that uh, he gets this lead that Harrelson may have been (laughs) attached to the, wait for it, John F. Kennedy assassination. (laughs) Which, by the way, every single time he says it, he's like, that's right, John F. Kennedy. (laughs) Um. Does anybody think this podcast might actually change the public narrative about the John F. Kennedy oh, assassination? Does anyone think that's where it's trying to go? Kevin, what do you think? Well, look, Donna, I suppose that you do actually have to kind of investigate it a little bit. Just like we said, you know, Carol feeding her husband to the tigers. It may be bullshit, but it's a legitimate part of the narrative. People think it, so you have to at least you have acknowledge to, it. You yeah. have to acknowledge it in some way or the other. I do not think that the CIA or the mob or whoever is supposed to have killed Kennedy, other than Lee Harvey Oswald, is going to turn to this guy <laughs> to kill the president. He shot two people up close and couldn't get away with that. Mm. But he's going to vanish into the inky shadows after having assassinated the president. Mm. Uh yeah, he killed a carpet salesman and a grain dealer. And they're like, oh, who do we need? <laughs> who in the deep state can we get <laughs> to kill the president in a moving car? Hmm. How about we get this professional gambler? But he did have the lawyer temper. that defended Jack Ruby, same lawyer. I mean, yeah, so that might be an interesting detail. It's an interesting detail. I mean, there are interesting details. I mean, Toby, I do agree with you that like there are interesting details just about whether or not they're interesting about Harrelson himself, they're interesting to details surrounding this case. You know, there's the the Jack Ruby, there's the the corrupt defense attorney who would just make up evidence. You know, there's like some noiry stuff. Toby, that's what you meant, right? When you talked about noiry stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I would listen to this if it was like a 45 minute thing. I mean, it does it does seem like a noir story about carpet salesmen, right? Who one feels like the other one rips him off, so he gets 
a hitman who lures the one guy using his hot girlfriend, picks him up in a convertible, drives out into the country, is going to just rough him up. They get into a fight. The victim grabs a shovel. And so the guy kills him. I mean, it's it's like a classic kind of noir story, yeah. which, you know, I, it's not to make light of it because it, it was a murder. But that's the interest in the story hmm. is that it kind of fits into this prototype of a kind of, you know, narrative or piece of entertainment or whatever that we're kind of used to, except that this is supposedly what really happened. I think the best case scenario for this like if you if you read much about Lee Harvey Oswald and, and and sort of the people he was around, I mean it was a seedy bunch of dudes, and so if the, it wouldn't surprise me if there was like some kind of intersection. Not that Harrelson Senior was like at all involved in it, but whether they had people they knew in common besides the the lawyer, whatever, you know, it's, it's not out of the question. Uh, whether that's interesting or not, I don't really know, but. I think that's sort of the best case scenario for how this stuff turns out. Because if it's like, well, you know, actually, the more we look, the more we realize that that's actually not re- really what happened. So thank you for listening. <laughs> that would be that'd be a little bit like he's he's thrown a lot out there. Can you imagine if someone were like, well, thanks for starting this. We acknowledge we can't finish it. <laughs> well, but yeah, it's like it's like what if you introduce the gun in Act One and then the play's over and the gun's still there yeah. and we're like, what the fuck? All right. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know: should they check out "Son of a Hitman"? Available on Spotify as an advanced listen, but it's also available on Apple Podcasts and other platforms too. That's where it is. So, should you check out "Son of a Hitman," the podcast about uh, Woody Harrelson's dad and the crimes he may or may not have committed Laura Bricker I'm going to start with you thumbs up or thumbs down for this podcast um I hate to say it but I'm thumbs down I had a really hard time staying focused listening to this I just um didn't find it super interesting aside from the fact that I love Woody Harrelson so um thumbs down for me Toby Ball what about you thumbs up or thumbs down for son of a hitman I I think I like it more than other people but I I don't think I'd like it enough to give it a a thumbs up but it's sort of a moderate thumbs down I've certainly we've we've reviewed a lot worse but there's too many negative things going on like the scales are not do not weigh in in a positive way (laughs) there's some good stuff but the bad and like not so good stuff kind of outweighs it in my opinion all right. So thumbs down, but not a blistering thumbs down. What about you, Kevin Flynn? I'm also a thumbs down. I don't hate this podcast, and I, I am pulling for the host to kind of like you know do a really good job here, but I just can't recommend this. We heard four episodes. There are six more, and I just like cannot bring myself to <laughs> say, "Oh, okay, it's Tuesday. All right, another episode." Of <laughs> it's like another Son bite of, of wheat man. germ. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna pass and say thumbs down. Yeah, I'm gonna say thumbs down too, and I, I'm sorry I'm gonna go on a little bit of a tangent here because it's relevant to my experience of this podcast. So Kevin, right before we listened to this, your daughter was with us for a few days mm-hmm. and my wonderful stepdaughter Lily, who's going to be twenty in a few weeks, is the trashiest TV watcher of anybody I've ever met. And I love it because we sit together and we watch like the worst shows ever. And she's super into them and it's really fun. One of the shows that she watches when she's around us that I've kind of gotten into as like a 
uh, side viewer, like, you know, sort of casual viewing, is that horrible show Catfish on MTV, where these, like, two amateur dudes just, like, expose, like, the fake online people who are courting other people on the internet, right? Mm -hmm. And this podcast, I'm not shitting you, sounds exactly like that show Catfish. In what way? If you were not watching, like, so Lily watches a lot of Catfish while I'm working, so I don't watch it. I'm just listening to it. So it's the flat affect of the narration. It's totally flat, without animation, poorly written, and without purpose. Tons of extraneous zoomy sound effects for no reason. And just this sort of hapless... Let's go here. Let's do there. But let's just also sit in the hotel room for a long time and not actually learn anything and just speculate. The difference is Catfish is actually kind of good because when you do watch it, like visually, you also see the guys who are making it are like rolling their eyes and like making these very ironic faces and have a lot of personality. So like it's a show that sounds terrible, but is actually a real guilty pleasure to watch. This thing just sounds terrible and it was made to be listened to. So it's like the audio equivalent of just listening to Catfish without watching it. So for me, it's a huge thumbs down. Um, Somebody at Spotify started taking notes <laughs> and they put the pen down halfway through Catfish. No one at Spotify is taking us. Listen, Spotify is a huge company. They're making a lot of very exciting content as we're about to discuss. This is not on that pile. I would not renew this for a second season. So thumbs down for me. Moving on. And then you wrote <laughs> Wikipedia. I think that's a command. You're like telling me to Wikipedia. <laughs> Wikipedia, Scorpions, Wind of Change. The song is remembered as an anthem to the fall of communism in Europe. But was it more than just a catchy power ballad? This song had been written by the CIA and had been a part of a PSYOPs campaign. Psychological operation. Exactly. To what? To insert this song, this music into the Soviet Union. To encourage change. <laughs> In the podcast Wind of Change from Spotify, Pineapple Street, and Crooked Media, reporter Patrick Radden Keefe investigates the claims from within the CIA that they were responsible for the Scorpions' iconic hit. The implication being Wind of Change was not an artistic commentary on the end of the Cold War, but a piece of Western propaganda designed to weaken Soviet influence. The idea that there are other stories he could tell, but not this one, because this one's too important, too secret. It's the story that can't be told. Leave me feeling strangely energized, like we're onto something, like there's something real here and we have to figure it out. Keith recalls the backstory of the song, CIA tradecraft involving the entertainment world, and the colorful characters surrounding the band who got them to that moment in history. The first few episodes of Wind of Change are out on all the platforms, but you can binge all eight episodes on the Spotify app. We're going to be talking about plot points for the entirety of the series Wind of Change. So to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes for our thumbs up or thumbs down review. Toby, this podcast is a journey, is it not? Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about that? I think it's good. I mean, I, it has a nice pace to it. And I think part of it is that Patrick Radden Keefe, like after his, his big break in the deep dive, which brought him to the nation, <laughs> he's done a really nice job. No, he's, he's a very amiable narrator. And I think 
you know, they, they go on a lot of tangents and they're, you know, a few kind of dead endish type things, but they're all interesting. And I think they all sort of have a point, even if the point isn't necessarily ultimately going to help answer the main question, which is, did the CIA write or have something to do with wind of change? Uh, but you, you end up sort of interacting with all these sort of interesting characters and hearing these crazy stories. And he, he just touches upon a whole bunch of different subjects that are involved in some way in this sort of greater story of that song and then the uh, two-day festival, sort of light metal festival in Moscow. So I, I thought it, I thought it was really, really well done. It's part of it. I was thinking, like, how many more hours of stuff does he have when he was like, kind of trying to chase things down that didn't end up being like quite interesting enough to make it into the podcast. Mm. But you know, he must have talked to so many other people just based on sort of these odd characters who he does end up talking to. That they, I, I assume they kept the audio in because the the stories are good. I thought the same thing, Toby and Kevin. One of the things I kept thinking when I was listening to this podcast is. They spent a lot of money making this podcast in travel, in music licensing. Like one of those tangents like Toby was just referencing, they leave some of these oddball tangents in. Like the one I think about is the G.I. Joe convention. They went to this convention. Right. The guy they wanted to talk to wasn't there. So they ended up calling him. But they spent money to travel to and go to this thing with the hopes of meeting that guy. Like, this was not an amateur-level production by any stretch of the imagination, right? Yeah, I don't know why they needed necessarily to go to the Ukraine to be there for a concert. Why not? Why not? Spotify was paying for it. Why would you not do that? It's all that special Gimlet money. (laughs) Spotify money. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the G.I. Joe thing was a little... (laughs) Because the guy had a post... His fan fiction, his Scorpion fan fiction. Characters. Characters. That he made. Yeah. Out of G.I. Joe figurines. I don't know. (laughs) But there were a couple of side stories that were really interesting along the way. And, and, you know, the wife of Tony Mendez, I forget her name, but he was- How sexist. By the way, right now in my mind, I don't remember her name either, although I did write it down on another piece of paper. But I don't think calling her the wife of Tony Mendez, we should just say- that amazing disguise lady from the CIA. Disguise lady. <laughs> who we know because she was married to Tony Mendez, which was the lead character in Argo. Yes. You know, the whole thing about the disguises and how she wore a disguise to go meet with President Bush. Yes. Uh, because he had been the, George H.W. Bush had been ahead of the CIA. And so he starts talking about the disguises that apparently he had to wear. Yes. When he was in the CIA. Yes. To go meet with people in China, right? That she just like does a Mission Impossible thing and rips the latex off her face. Like, that's fucking awesome. Yeah. Laura, do you think this is a podcast about whether or not the CIA wrote the song? Or is it a podcast about the CIA? I mean, I learned so much about the CIA listening to this podcast, didn't you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I, I do think it is about the song and that time in history and you know, how that relates to the CIA, whether or not they were operating at that time with regard to like what was going on with this song, but just how they were operating at that time in history and the stories of what was going on and the people that were involved and like, you know, the Scorpions had that guy that was like traveling around with them who, um, or no, it was the nitty gritty dirt band. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, it is, that is the jumping off point for the story. And I, but I do think they keep that thread of the story pretty consistent with regard to the song and the scorpions throughout, 
But the side benefit is you're learning a lot about what the CIA was or was not doing at that time and how it operates, even with regard to like Freedom of Information Act requests. So mm. there was a lot of extra information that went along with following up on the, the overall question of this podcast. I will say the other thing this podcast and I, you know, I love this. I love when journalists talk about how they do journalism mm -hmm. and like things about journalism. Because I know that most people don't know how journalism works. And that whole series of, um, you know, scenes about FOIA and how it works and the kind of responses you get back. And then the the origins of Glomar, the why we can either confirm nor deny. Like, I listened to that and my heart sung because I'm like, people do not know how this works and that there is actually an origin story behind if we can't confirm or deny thing. To me, those that kinds of details. That was an episode of, of uh, Radiolab. I know, but they sing. Those things sing yeah. to me. Like, I just, I love that stuff so, so much. Now, Kevin, uh, you made a pretty, like, bold comparison when you were first listening to this podcast. I think you're only a couple episodes in and you made a comment to me and I'd oh, like to give you the chance to say what you said about this podcast. I said this might be the serial of music history podcasts. Okay, why is that? It shares a lot with the Sarah Koenig narrative of the first person uh, journalism and, you know, the idea that uh, there's an interest. Is there a story here? And in that way, it's certainly different than a lot of things that we've ever listened to. And there was quality all along. Every time we sort of went into a different direction to talk about music history or uh, CIA tradecraft or let's find out more about Doc McGee and his drug dealing ways with Manuel Noriega. Each each of these uh, little uh, vignettes told really really well. Yeah. So Toby, I have a question for you. I mean, Henry actually, our producer, sent me some notes about the podcast because I asked him to because I knew he the whole time I was listening to this, I was like, oh my god, Henry is going to love everything about this. So he sent me some notes about it, and one of the notes that. Um, he sent me is he actually knows a lot about that like CIA propaganda music program. But what we hear in the podcast is this sort of unwitting uh, way that a lot of people were used and their art was used by the CIA. You know, one of the things we hear in this podcast is that Scorpion's music was popular throughout the other side of the Iron Curtain, as we sort of hear them say, which is really funny, by the way, on the other side, they call us the other side of the <laughs> Iron Curtain, which is great. But anyway, that it was by these tapes being spread like hand to hand. And Toby, I was wondering if you wondered what I wondered, like, maybe the CIA just did that. Maybe they were just helping people hand tapes out. What do you think about this propaganda stuff and how it actually worked besides the Nina Simone story and the Louis Armstrong story that we heard? I, I just thought that the stuff that he laid out, it was pretty clear that the, the CIA didn't do anything creative. You know, they, they, they weren't really involved in making art. But what they were good at was recognizing what art could be influential uh, in sort of advancing the American cause and then either explicitly or through subterfuge, getting those artists to bring their art where they wanted them to. In the in the end, like I kind of felt throughout the thing, he was making the case that they probably didn't write the song. Like it was probably like legitimately a Scorpion song, but that they recognized what they could do with it and then, you know, help distribute it, like you were saying, uh, behind the Iron Curtain. 
and blowing it up. I don't know if this is part of the thing, but you know, if they would have helped put their finger on the scale for the scenes that are in the video of the Berlin Wall coming down and stuff, like that to me seems like another piece of something that the CIA would be like, all right, let's just make this as explicit as possible what this song is about. But I actually listened to the audiobook of uh, the Chivago Affair. The Kremlin, the CIA, and the battle over a forbidden book. So they printed 10,000 copies of a Russian-language edition of the book to be smuggled back into the USSR. It was only a few years ago that the CIA finally declassified the files, boasting, and I'm quoting here, that the whole episode shows how soft power can influence events. The book for which I was named after Toby. <laughs> exactly. That didn't come up actually in this, I don't think. <laughs> yeah. Big glaring hole. Ah, oh, come on, Tobes. But uh, Patrick Rand Keefe like, brings up Dr. Zhivago as you know, one of the big examples of the CIA kind of exploiting art for its uses. And it's, it's a super interesting book about the lengths the CIA had to go to to like smuggle it out and then smuggle it back in. And it's a little recommendation. So I don't really have a wrap up other than to say, I don't think they wrote it for him. <laughs> well, Laura, though, I mean, speaking of the power of the song, Talk about your memory of Wind of Change, because it actually directly ties to what Toby was just saying. Oh, yeah. So I have this friend, Mary, that I grew up with, you know, somebody that was in all my elementary school, like, yeah, and I had a small school. And her mom had, like, one of the stories she talked about a lot, her mom escaping from Germany when she was a child and how she, like, got out of Germany hiding under, like, a pile of potatoes on this potato cart. And that's how she escaped. So when this song came out, and Mary was always listening to all the hair bands as well, she was like incessantly listening to the song, but she was listening to the song. And, and it was like when the Berlin Wall was coming down and she was talking about like her mom's experience getting out of Germany. And then like, you know, so there was this song that she was always listening to. And then she was always listening to that like 99 Luft Balloon song as well. <laughs> yeah. But it's like burned in my memory. Like I remember like sitting in her house listening to this song. And so it's like one of those like where were you when type things when I hear it. And so then that sent me down like this whole rabbit hole last weekend, my poor family, because I got on my iTunes and I started like, oh, what was the other songs I loved? I'm like, oh, every rose has its thorn. And I was like running on the house <laughs> singing it. Poison. And I was like, oh, yeah. I was like, man, Guns and Roses. It was like opening up this whole window of nostalgia, um, all these songs that we were listening to. So, yeah. I do love the music critic they talked to from Florida who does a little takedown of hair bands, <laughs> which is like, these are just pretty boys singing pop songs, like pretending that they're cool. <laughs> it was pretty good. Now, Kevin, I want to talk about the framing of the first episode because I think we maybe experienced it differently. I thought it was brilliant. At the beginning of the episode, we hear Michael, uh, Patrick Radkeefe's friend, who, by the way, is like so mysterious and mm -hmm. cool, uh, calling Oliver, the fake named ex-CIA guy. And I know that it would be difficult for you to tell it on the record, but I'm wondering if you would do it with like, um, you know, a different name and a scratchy voice and, and be interviewed. Right, of course. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, no, that's true. Understood, don't want that to happen. I do not want you to go to jail. I do not want you to be arrested under felony charges or even worse. We hear the phone call again at the end. We actually hear more of the phone call at the end. And we hear this whole episode in between that frames 
why or why not Oliver may want to get involved or not. And that's where we hear a lot of like the basics about like post-CIA life. I thought the framing of that episode and the writing of it was so, so good. And I see here in your notes, you're like, I don't need to hear that phone call twice. Are we going to have to fight about this? I, I, out of this whole podcast? <laughs> that's what you want to no, take me down? Broader about? question. The writing is yeah. so good, is it not? It is. It's a good choice to start there. Yeah. You know, with you know the emissary trying to find out from, is he Greybeard or was this guy heard it from Greybeard? He heard or, it from Greybeard, yeah. The fact that the rumor comes from within the CIA gives the rumor standing because, uh, you know, there's a lot of rumor in Son of a Hitman, but it just is like conspiracy theory mm. stuff, right? And on its own, this would be kind of a ridiculous theory, but the fact that it comes from within the CIA and that it's just believable enough, it's not as outrageous. It, there's just like this, it's this it's truthiness. Sticky. It's sticky. Yeah, there's this truthiness to it that there's a legitimacy here to this quest. Yeah. You know what was interesting? It was actually very interesting listening to these two podcasts in the same week. Yeah. Because one of them was so well-sourced and had so much information. Patrick Radden Keefe even talks about the difference between like a CIA agent and a CIA officer. And then you uh-huh. hear in the other podcast we review talking about just like operatives. Like they're everyone. Like everyone's an operative. And I'm like, no. Like read a book like Patrick Redden Keefe did. Like that's not what that word means. It's just very interesting. The contrast between the thoroughness and believability because even Michael, who is just Patrick Redden Keefe's friend, he does such a good job laying the groundwork for why Michael is somebody that we can sort of trust because I trust him. Mm-hmm. It's very, very compelling and convincing when he's like, He's given me like 90% of my story ideas and he's been like right about all of them. <laughs> like it just builds credibility uh, for that reason. Laura, a question for you. Um, Doc McGee, mm-hmm. uh, manager for the hair bands, created this Say No to Drugs tour for this yeah. like Moscow music festival, which was crazy. Yeah. Also, though, has like a naughty freaking backstory. Uh, he got an amazing deal. Do you think that perhaps... He was working for the government, and that's kind of why some of this stuff ended up happening. Like, one of my burning questions is, why did this band record this song in Russian? Whose idea was that? Was that Doc McGee's idea? Because the CIA told him. I found myself with a lot of questions. What about you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, that's the thing, you know, listening to this. When we're talking about, like, what's what's plausible and what's what's not listening to this. Like, how far-fetched is this theory? I mean, I go back to that documentary we watched a while back where that guy was on the quest to find out if his father falling out the window was actually a suicide or was related to the CIA when they were Wormwood. Yes. So it's not totally far-fetched to think that the CIA was involved in some weird dealings at that time with people that they were roping in to help them out. When I heard then Doc McGee's story, and I'm like, so everybody else went to jail. Hmm. And he was like just like doing concerts in Russia. And then mysteriously, this song uh, comes from that. I mean, it does seem kind of interesting. Mm. And, and even now when you hear like like the the buildup when when he goes to go see him at his his place in Florida, like Doc McGee's um, doing pretty well for himself. So I, I don't know if I buy into the whole like, you know, the CIA wrote the song. But I do feel like that perhaps they might have worked through this guy to, you know, from what you're what you're hearing in this to kind of influence opinion at the time. 
by positioning people to be in the right places at the right time with the right message to sway things the way that you wanted to go. Because it doesn't make any sense to me, you know, why, why he didn't go to jail, why nothing else happened to him. I want to know who gave them the idea to record it in Russia. That's what I just said. You know? Whose idea was that? That doesn't surprise me at all. Why, did they record all of their songs in Russian, Toby, or just this one? No, but but they, they record one about Russia in Russian after playing in consecutive years, playing these concerts where they show up for the first one and they're just like, you know, we're just going to play our tunes. Nobody's going to know what they are, but they're gonna just going to be jacked up to have like Western rock and roll. Oh, Toby. And then they start playing. You snowflake. And like. <laughs> My God, Toby. The invisible hand <laughs> led them there. Come on. I, I'm, I'm losing your criticism of this. <laughs> I, just, I just think they're the scorpions. Like yeah. their music's ridiculous. And they show up and means so much to all these people. And I think that's kind of what moved him to write Wind of Change. And then I think he was like, I want to get this across to Russians. I want them to be able to hear it. I mean, I that one part where they're like, I can't remember who it was, said, have you ever listened to the words of Rock You Like a Hurricane? And they're just, they're completely ridiculous. Yes. Like they're misogynistic and ridiculous. And so I would just think that if that was your life, was playing this kind of ridiculous music and you're like sort of a poor man's German ACDC, and then you show up in this, like the second most powerful country in the world and people somehow know your music, even though it's outlawed there. Like that to me, I would think would be a pretty like shocking experience. And I think for some, I mean, Klaus Minus seems like a little bit thoughtful. And in my my picturing it is him being like, oh shit, like this is pretty wild. Like I'm just writing these fucking ridiculous songs about whatever. They don't really mean anything, but they, they clearly there's some connection here for these people who are like, super thirsty for this kind of stuff. I mean, that, that that was kind of my take. And I realize it's probably part of it's like listening to the Scorpions when I was 14. Yeah. Uh, and thinking they were cool. <laughs> but and, and then later reading an article about how like various parts of Spinal Tap were based on their antics. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, that's that's kind of why I, it didn't surprise me that they wanted to do it in Russian. Because I, I, I kind of felt like he... I would be surprised if I was in his position, I would have been pretty moved by the fact that all these people knew my music, even though it was illegal there at the time. I I would have found it shocking. Kevin, you know that the uh, producer on this podcast, Henry, not our podcast on Wind of Change, Henry, Mm. is the same producer who produced Dan Taberski's podcast. And there is the episode where they go talk to Klaus. Uh, the sort of climax of the story and then the hotel room and producer Henry is like, I don't like, you know, I like to have the microphones here, here, here and here and I hear this whole conversation. And there's this brilliant piece of narration where Klaus is talking about finding the original lyrics and just out of nowhere is like. The good thing is that I put the date yeah. on there that makes it so special. Is he hitting this a little hard at this point? Like he's maybe protesting too much. Our Henry Lavoie made the note, Klaus, with his convenient date on the original lyrics, it's like the Kavanaugh calendar in the Supreme Court <laughs> confirmation hearings. And we hear Patrick saying, like, you think he's leaning a little heavily on the fact that the date is on these lyrics? What do you think? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's confirmation bias, right? Because if yeah. you think that the, it's, it's fishy, this origin story, right. 
it sounds totally confirmation biasy to support that. Right. If he leads with, look, the date is on the lyrics. Well, look, this is all what it comes down to. Does he prove one way or the other that the CIA had a hand in the success of Wind of Change? And he doesn't. Is that okay? Yeah, I think in that way it shares the same benefit that Serial does. No, there isn't a definitive answer, but it was a really interesting journey. I think, though, he could have maybe shared a little more of his own suppositions. He did think about it for a year. I think it would have been okay for him to say, what I think happened. Mm. Um, Well, Laura's going to do that for us. Laura, what do you think happened? Wow. I would like to tell you my theory on this. So when I went down the rabbit hole listening to all of the hairband music, I found another song that was eerily similar to this song. And if you play them side by side, they might have been written by the same person because I listened to all the Scorpions music. I'm like, this doesn't sound like anything else, of course, because it was written by Klaus. I know exactly what song you're going to say. I think I do. Is it going to be Patience by Guns N' Roses? Yes, by Guns N' Roses. Yes. Yes, they're almost the same song. And I'm like... Hello, I'm like, I would say Guns N' Roses has a better shot of having written this song than the Scorpions. I'm just saying, I once went to a Velvet Revolver concert. I may or may not have flashed my boobs at Slash. But, Whoa. Oh, wait, did I just say that out loud? Oh, my God. You did. God. <laughs> We're learning so much about you, Laura I Bricker. think that they actually had something to do with this song. They are The two songs side by side had the same construction. They're very similar. They both open with protracted whistle solos. Yes. There are some similarities there. So, so do you think Axel is the guy who was at that CIA dinner? <laughs> I think it's oh Axel Rose. Oh, my God. At the Watergate? At that guy's apartment? Yeah. Really interesting theory, Toby Ball. They did say he was American, didn't they? I can neither confirm nor deny. Okay. Patrick Radden Keefe has a season two here. I think he needs to ask the whose idea was it to write the song in Russian question. Anna needs to ask, was it Axl Rose at that apartment dinner? A hundred percent. I saw Guns N' Roses twice. And the first time Skid Row opened for him. And I'm pretty sure... Sebastian Bach came out screaming, hey, motherfuckers, uh, just like he did in Moscow. This just officially turned into the whitest podcast on the internet right now. Just FYI. (laughs) Well, since everybody's got their hair growing long. Yeah, I know. I hate hair band music so much, except for a little bit of Guns N' Roses here and there. I can't lie. All right. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Wind of Change? It's available in its entirety right now on Spotify, but it is being released on all the apps, including Apple and Stitcher and anywhere you listen to your podcasts. It's an eight-part series from Pineapple Street and Crooked Media and Spotify, uh, starring Patrick Radden Keefe, writer for The New Yorker. Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. What do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for this podcast? Uh, This is a big thumbs up. I listened to this all in one day while I was doing all my little house projects last weekend. And it's it's a really fun, interesting listen. I've been telling all my, like everybody that I see or talk to this week, I'm like, you should listen to this podcast. It's so interesting. You've got nostalgic hairband music. You've got spies, international adventures, crazy characters, and that guy, Michael, who is Patrick Radden Keefe's friend that I totally want to be friends with too. So I would say, listen to it. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Wind of Change. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like Patrick Radden Keefe wins the uh, Toby Ball Man of the Year Award. <laughs> yeah, it's very coveted award too. Yeah, well, it's the first. <laughs> who, was, who, who was the runner up for that award? <laughs> no, but Say, say Nothing was uh, just a great book. And then he follows it up with this podcast, which I think 
was it Reply All? What was the thing that had the the guy who couldn't remember the the song? That yeah. was Reply yeah. All. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that was Reply All, and where people were like, you know, is this the greatest podcast episode ever? But I, I kind of feel like this is a great story for podcasting. Mm-hmm. He found a story. I mean, he's he's generally a print person. Uh, realized it was a great podcast story. And then for a guy who ha- hasn't done podcasts before, really figures out how to how to really use podcasting for ways in that it's different than print. And I think if this had been like a magazine article or something, it might have felt like, why are we going? Why are we talking about this? Why are we talking about this? Why are we talking about this? But because you know, so much of it is these super interesting interviews with with people whose stories you're interested in hearing um, and he ties it back enough to what's what the center is it's not like the perfect podcast but I think it sort of perfectly understands what the possibilities are for podcasts versus other forms of, of you know this kind of thing like I guess magazine articles or books so anyway uh, it's a long way of, of saying uh, thumbs up uh, I thought it was really good will recommend it to a lot of people. And, uh, you know, hopefully he has got the bug and will stick around and do some more things in between writing for The New Yorker. And being on the deep dive. What about you, Kevin Flynn? I'm a thumbs up. I thought this was a really great journey. The question is just so interesting. And unlike anything else that we've been presented before, I will say that the song did get in my head, Wind of Change, I hadn't heard in Earworm. many, many years. Yep. And I, I couldn't even tell you if I've ever heard it start to end. Uh, and I thought, like, we, you'd get burned out on it. But for some reason, even that, they played just enough of it here and there that you remember it, but you're not burned out. Like, they did that in uh, The Thing You Do. Mm-hmm. Like, it's all built around one song, and you're going to keep showing them playing it. But, you know, they held enough of it back that in the end, the big finale is, oh, yeah, I want to hear this whole song now. So anyway, uh, good job with uh, Wind of Change. Yeah, I can't say enough good things about this podcast. You know, I started the review of the first podcast in this episode by saying, like, this was a very uninteresting podcast because the story is so low stakes. Like, who cares? This question that Patrick Keefe throws at us, like, honestly, let's be real. Like, who cares? Right. Except... It's not only about that. That is a framework to have us learn about the CIA. Ultimately, there's this incredibly literary scene near the end of the podcast uh, that really makes the listener realize, is this show really just about the nature of conspiracy and what we want to explore, why we want to explore it, and whether or not we propagate that conspiracy by actually asking these questions? So interesting. I just want to give a hat tip to Henry Malofsky and Pineapple Street Media. I've said this on the show before. I will say it again. I can't say it enough. Pineapple Street is the studio that is making podcasts right now that when I hear they may are making something, I cannot wait to listen to it. There is no other production house right now that I can say that about reliably. Pineapple Street is right now the HBO or the whatever is better than HBO of podcasting, just the excellence of not just the storytelling and the writing, but the seamlessness of the mixing, the beauty of the production. Everything is just put together perfectly. I loved this podcast. I found myself wondering sometimes, like, why do I love this? But then I kept listening, and that tells me it's a podcast worth listening to. So huge thumbs up for me for Wind of Change. 
Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the week. The week. The situation was not Gouda. In Nashville this week, a tractor trailer spilled 40,000 pounds of macaroni and cheese on the highway. Not boxes of it, but 40,000 pounds of loose pasta noodles and the powdered cheese used to mix it together. Photos show the junction of Interstates 24 and 40 covered in a spray of yellow powder. It's been a bad week for food delivery in the area. The day before, a truck carrying frozen chicken crashed on I-840 south of Nashville. The day before that, a truck filled with pumpkin pies caught fire in the middle of Tennessee. So panel, here's my question for you, Laura Bricker. What is the next food-related calamity to befall Music City? Um, Well, when I first heard the list of items here, it kind of reminded me of like Southern Thanksgiving Mm. because (laughs) like mac and cheese apparently is like a side dish in in like Southern Thanksgiving. Um, But I'm obsessed with the hot chicken in Nashville, as you all remember. Mm -hmm. I dragged you out on the hot chicken adventure. So I feel like there's going to be some sort of a hot chicken explosion coming up with um, perhaps a little too much hot sauce, a little too much red pepper. Not for nothing, Laura, but I think you had a hot chicken explosion when we went to Nashville, did you not? I did. I don't know, Rebecca. You're the one who was obsessed with that hot guy who was eating the hot chicken. Rebecca's like, do you see that hot guy eating the hot chicken? It was true. And so I I stand by it. I stand by it. I questioned him. Dare to tell me he's not hot. You're lying. Toby Ball, what food disaster do you think will next befall the Music City? Well, I had two answers, and somehow Laura ruined them both. Um, So, yeah, I'm just going to say rampaging cronuts. Perfect. Uh, Kevin Flynn, what about you? What's the next food-related calamity to befall the Music City? I had three answers. And they all ruined them. Mm. No, I'm just, I think the guy riding underneath that uh, wine tank from last week mm. is going to make his way into town drinking I, wine. I think one of those stupid pedal taverns <laughs> is going to like drive over <laughs> some nachos or something. That's oh. going to be what's going to happen. Those things are so stupid, are they not? Sorry, Nashvillians, but those things are stupid, stupid, Woo! stupid. 10 in the morning. <laughs> a lot of woo girls. All right, before we end the show, Lara Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? <laughs> We do have a cat of the week this week, and it's in honor of those of us that have been cutting our own hair, cutting our family members' hair. This week, I cut Buddy the dog's hair. Nice. And there's a lot of that going along, but then there's some other things happening where they shouldn't be happening. So Allison Wonderland sent me a picture of her poor, wait, mean Allison Wonderland. Is that Wander. a real name? I don't know what her real name is, but oh, it's it like a Twitter handle. Her, her, yes, it comes up as Allison Wonderland. <laughs> okay, not Wonderland, Wonderland on Twitter. All right, and her poor Maine Coon cat. And so this is like an orange, fluffy, long-haired cat, and it looks like a victim of something. Now I don't know. Its legs have been cut, but its hair hasn't been cut. Hmm. But so it, it's it's like a little kid, not the vet, took the shears to this poor thing. And she says, as a reference. I asked that his armpits and belly be trimmed. Instead, his undercarriage is naked with fur boots and fringed cuffs. Mm. So it looks like a nice. cat lollipop, huh? It's I don't even know. It's just <laughs> it's just bad. But it's just a thing. If you're gonna it's cut, it's like that line in France. Yes. So if you're gonna cut your hair, your pets' hair, your family members' hair, use a light touch. You don't have to go crazy in quarantine. Just a little touch up. Don't do what happened to this poor cat. No, I agree. I actually bought some of those thinning shears 
and they are the jam. Because oh, I you can't can, wait. You can just hack away forever, and you're not actually cutting anything. You're just thinning stuff out. They work great. I've been cutting my sons there. They've been coming out great. Laura Bricker, if folks want to reach out to you on Twitter to send you their animal nominees, any kind of animal will do, especially dogs, to be Cat of the Week. How can they find you online? At Laura Bricker. And Toy Ball, folks want to reach out to you to ask you what exactly is so noir about Son of a Hitman. How can they find you on Twitter? At Toy Ball and H. And Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you and encourage you to let me cut your hair because it's getting far too long, how can they find you on Twitter? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reblavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On, and I encourage you to join our amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. Support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll get the Crime Writers On after show right now. Plus, our excellent advice show, Mary with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Laura Bricker's Investigative Adventures, Leave It to Bricker Podcast. Our theme song was performed by the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. Our line editor is the handsome and astute Henry Lavoie. Our social media and newsletter maven on maternity leave is my fellow Taco Bell stan, Meredith Plunkett. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our basement that is actually a CIA operations center whose patriotic mission is to take down really freaking bad podcasts. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. later. Square it up. Get yourself framed up like a normal person. I'm working on it. Rebecca, I'm putting my fake wall up. <laughs> Only Laura would be so crafty as to have a fake wall. Laura, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through the checklist with you. Are you ready? Hold on. My wall's falling over. <laughs> <laughs> this is a nightmare. This whole thing is going to be a nightmare. <laughs> Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.